The computer itself is made up of many layers. On the disk, whatever kind of disk you have, SSD or spinning disk, there's going to be a layer of caching built into the storage device itself. On top of that, your storage controller may have caching in it. On top of that, you've got main memory, which is very often used as things like a file cache. On top of that, you have anywhere between one and four layers of caching within the CPU itself, all with different latency stories and safety guarantees, ultimately getting down to, well, when you want to run something, you're putting something in a register. Everything other than a register is a cache of some sort, or it's a system of record. So you can imagine that things get pretty complicated when you want to say, okay, what is really the journey of this byte through my system? Welcome back to Alexa's Input. As simple as possible, as powerful as necessary, right? Welcome to Alexa's Input. <laughs> The person is probably more interesting than the tool that they're using. Welcome to Alexa's Input! Welcome to the fifth episode of Welcome Alexa's, back to Alexa's Input. Then a six-year-old runs into the data center with a squirt gun and they <laughs> set that machine into a pile of sparks and flames. Yes, it's a good thing to do. Is it the thing we should be doing? Welcome to Alexa's Input. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. Today we have a popular guest back. His name is Mike Hurwitz. And if you didn't hear my intro in the Databases in Danger episode, I'll give you a short intro again. So he was the VP of Engineering at FactSet. After that, he moved on to be an engineer at Tumblr, Shutterstock, Blink Health, and now he's a principal engineer at BlueCore. He's my mentor, 10 out of 10 person, can't recommend enough. I love talking to him. He's he's very good at educating, and he does it with great attitude. So, of course, he's an amazing guest. But you guys know that already, so I'll go into what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about caching. And the first part of this episode is going to be learning about the basics of caching, what is caching. For those that you don't know, it'll be a great learning experience. For those of you that do already know, it'll be a great refresher. So first, we touch on these points. What is caching, and why do we care? What are the main things you achieve with caching? What are some rules around caching? Is caching always in memory? How is it stored? What patterns do we use to access the cache? What are the details of caching and their different policies? And we touch on cache placement and cache replacement, which is a great segue into the last part, um, the second part of the episode, which is about Lazy LRU, the caching library that Danger wrote. It's open source, it's on GitHub, and there's a blog about it that I'm gonna link in the description, so make sure you check that out. I really encourage you, even if you have to do it through two different settings, I know it's kind of a long podcast through the first 30 minutes and the last, I really encourage you to listen to the last part of it. There's some great content on how he approached making the Lazy LRU cache, why he did it, and maybe it will be good for you to use at some point. So great job, Danger, on putting that out, putting it open source. I know a ton of work went into that. Again, the links are going to be in bio, the bio. Make sure you check those out. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you know when a new episode is coming out. Also, if you can, uh, feel free to support me on Anchor. I appreciate the like five people who have already that you know who you are. I very much appreciate you. Just know that. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Alexa's Input. 
Lastly, I haven't written a blog in a while, mostly because I've been busy with, you know, doing all the podcast stuff, but I'm planning on publishing a blog in a couple weeks. So in my link tree link in the description of the podcast on Anchor, you can find my Medium blog site. And so I'm trying to get back into that. Uh, We'll see how that goes, but keep an eye out for that coming out. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Alexa's input. Welcome to Alexa's input. Okay, that was that was so. good. That was good. <laughs> Anyways, welcome back to Alexa's input. Uh, I'm excited today because we have back by popular demand, Mike Hurwitz, aka Danger, to talk about caching. Do you want to introduce yourself again? Hi, I'm Mike Hurwitz, also known as Danger Mike. I am a principal software engineer at BlueCore, working on data science infrastructure. And uh, I would say I am a caching enthusiast. I like that. Yeah, I definitely wanted to name this, what was it? Cache rolls everything around me, but you told me, no, that's super nerdy and overused. So I won't do that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that's fine. So why don't we start off by talking about what the heck is a cache? Why do we care? So... In a, in a world where systems are infinitely sized, you can imagine that you write a piece of data, you go read the piece of data, and that's kind of the end of the story. But in real world systems, you have to worry about a couple of sort of things that are gonna get in the way of that. The first is it may just take too long. The database that you're talking to or the system that you're talking to it may not have the data in the in the easiest form for you to consume. It may not have the data nearby. For whatever reason, it may take a while to query. But on top of that, you also may have problems where you have lots and lots and lots of readers. I'll give as an example, let's say you're talking about a social network. Well, a post happens once. Maybe it has an edit, maybe it doesn't, but let's just say it doesn't, it happens once. Well, that's one write operation and potentially millions and millions of read operations. And if it's not millions of read operations on the actual body of the thing, it may only be millions of read operations on the metadata for that thing. So you wanna have a different form of it that you're gonna be accessing quickly. But regardless, you don't want every person who's looking at your social network to have to go back to your primary database, your source of truth, when a copy is good enough. So caching is a way of managing those copies so that uh, you don't need to put the burden on your primary data store. That makes sense to me. Uh, What are the main things that you're trying to achieve with caching? So Latency and bandwidth are, are obviously, you know, as just mentioned, topping the list there, right? We want to be able to get things quickly and we want to be able to get a lot of them potentially far more than your primary store may be able to handle. But along with that, you may also want to have it in a, in a different shape, right? You may, it may take five calls to different things in order to collect some piece of data. So the thing that you really want may not exist in that form anywhere outside of your cache. And that may be exactly what you need for now. And storing it ephemerally is good enough. One of the things that is a hallmark of caching, at least most of the time, is that the cache itself is ephemeral. 
it's not considered to be the source of truth. And if you lose it, that's kind of okay. There's going to be a performance implication, but you're not going to be sacrificing correctness if your cash is not available. As a practical matter, I'll say that having worked through this in a couple of different environments, if you lose all your caches, you may not lose correctness, but you may completely lose uptime. There were definitely cases, uh, for instance, when I was working at Tumblr, where we lost the cache and we needed to bring traffic on slowly because if we didn't, the database servers would have just crumbled under the load. So you're not relying on caching for the source of truth to like update anything per se, but you're just using it to quickly access things, right? Exactly. And there are a lot of rules around what makes that a safe operation to do. As an example, you could say, oh, uh, whenever I am looking at my bank balance, I don't want to go back to the database to get my bank balance. Well, if that's the case, you're, you better have some way of guaranteeing that your cash is reasonably up to date with the transactions that are out in the world, or you're going to do the wrong thing. I could go to one ATM and have my friend hitting the same account from across the street. And if those caches aren't coherent in some way, well, maybe I'm going to be able to read an invalid bank balance and double draw. So you've got to be careful about what you're storing in your cache and what the life cycle of that is and what guarantees you can provide around it. That leads to a bunch of different patterns that, that are used. Sometimes it's as simple as you write a thing and you just wait for that thing to expire and if it expires, great. And if it doesn't, just as good. And it sort of doesn't matter. Sometimes you're going to be able to say, well, I have control over the write path in my system. So every time I'm going to write into my system, I'm going to have some way of replacing the contents of that cache. Or maybe you're saying, you know what? I'm going to have caches distributed all over the world. And it's okay if they're a little out of date, but I don't want them to be a lot out of date. So every time I write, I'm just going to send an invalidation message to all of the systems around the world. So they're not, they're not going to necessarily need to be updated right now. But when somebody asks for something, they're going to know, hey, the data you have is stale and you shouldn't trust it. That could be true for caches that are external, you know, external systems to the thing that you're writing, or it could even be for things that you're putting in memory, where I'm going to have a cache of some piece of data for some period of time, but I know that it's valid until something has changed. So that's a relatively common pattern. When I think of cache, I usually think in memory. Is that always true? Not necessarily. So for some caches, you're talking about memory and only memory. But if you can imagine, uh, for instance, content delivery networks, which are caches that sit in front of usually web, but it could be you know any application out on a network somewhere. So I'm going to have all of my images, which may be anywhere between 10 kilobytes and 10 megabytes roughly speaking. So I'm going to have all of my images stored somewhere, Amazon S3 or Google uh, uh, GCS, and I want to have them readable from all around the world. Well, you don't want to store all of those in memory. Even if you could, 
it's probably not worth doing. But when you consider that memory is roughly 1,000th the cost per unit of storage, byte, megabyte, however you want to define it, as compared to memory, well, disk is probably good enough. So for those large objects, no, you wouldn't be caching those in memory. I mean, you might have a couple of them in memory, but not all of them. But for the CDN, you would have this massive blob of storage that's going to have tiers. Maybe there'll be a memory tier. Maybe there'll be an SSD tier. Maybe there'll be a spinning disk tier underneath that potentially, you know, depending on how big and how latency tolerant you are. And that would still be a huge win. So it's not necessarily in memory, but at some point, the goal is to get it in memory somewhere. So there's always going to be some memory involved somehow. So what type of patterns do we usually use then to access the cache? Because I'm assuming like people don't usually use BigQuery for cache, right? So no. what, type of, what type of storage do we usually use? So it depends on, on what your access patterns are. And that's, that's sort of, I think we talked about this when we talked about databases, that access patterns really drive everything, right? That's, that's what's going to, to make you decide to use one thing or another. But at some level, whenever you're talking about a cache, you're saying there is a value that is associated with a key somewhere, somehow. And that value may be this big blob that has internal structure that you're going to deal with in some way. That value may be an object in your application that is going to have its properties and methods or whatever the case may be. But ultimately, you're starting with some abbreviation for that thing, some key. In some situations, you're going to want to have that key associated with what is ultimately a mutable value. If you can imagine a system where we've got users as an example, and I want to have those users, uh, we have 100 million users in our system. We clearly don't need to access all of them all the time. They're all sitting in some database somewhere, but the users who are active right now, we're going to be looking at their user records a lot. So we're going to want to have them in cache. Well, what happens if that user record changes out from underneath you? We change their permissions as an example, or even we change some piece of random metadata like the URL to the icon that we're going to show them in their profile pic. Like it doesn't really matter what it is. Something is, got to, is going to be mutable about that thing. So you're going to have the key, which would be the user ID, tied back to this value, which is going to be a some kind of a blob of data. In some cases, you can get away with referring not to a mutable thing, like the object that I just described, but to an immutable thing. An example of this would be uh, talking about our CDN case. If, we, if you upload an image into my magical system, I could say, I'm going to take your image, I'm going to hash your image, and I'm going to name the file on in my primary storage by the hash of your image. And when I send out the HTML that you're going to use in your browser to render the page, it's going to refer to the image by that image URL, which is going to be a hash. Well, that thing can be immutable forever, and it'll be just fine. 
Because if you come in and say, no, 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 I want to change my post. So instead of referring to the image that I gave you before, I'm going to refer to the image that I give you now. That's okay. It's just a different hash. So you don't need to worry about the object that lives behind that hash changing. It can be static forever. Where things start to get complicated is when you assume, well, it's always going to be the same, and then you're wrong. I think DNS caches are a great example of that. Something that uh, you're going to run into if you're ever working on a Java-based application, as an example, is that Java applications have their own DNS cache internal to the JVM. So if the service you're talking to that you're addressing via DNS changes because let's say that, rec that record that you're referring to, that IP address has gone down and they've replaced it with a new, new system, you're still gonna be pointing at the old one, even though their DNS record, if you query it again, is going to tell you that there's something new. There's a sort of core invalidation problem that you have in that environment because you've made an incorrect assumption about the life cycle of that object that is ultimately mutable. It's uh, where systems tend to break <laughs> because people have made bad assumptions and then carry them forward. And you only realize when something has changed around you, which is probably rare, that you were dead wrong and you end up doing terrible things like saying, oh, I have to, reboot all of my instances, you know, all of my server instances, because that's the only way for me to clear the DNS caches. That's when you learn the hard way, unfortunately. But uh, caching is one of those things where if you can take the easy way out, that's great. Always take the easy way out. But you're going to learn the hard way when you're wrong. And it pays to think about it ahead of time like all sort of access pattern questions. Yeah, and uh, most of the caches I've seen are usually key value. Is this uh, pretty typical for caches like, or are they usually structured differently? Very often that's the case, um, especially when you're talking about sort of generic caches. If you're saying, mm -hmm. well, I'm gonna be using like memcache Redis to store, my thing. Well, I read it from some other database and I'm going to write it back to, let's say memcache, because memcache is just key value. I'm going to write it back to memcache and sort of do my thing from there. Well, memcache doesn't know what you're writing. It's a blob. So you write your blob and if that blob happens to be just a value or if it's JSON or if it's protobuf or whatever, that's kind of your problem. There are caches that are more content aware. Um, CDNs, I think, are a great example of that, where they're not aware of what's in the blobs that they're storing, but they're aware of the protocol semantics that stand around it. So there's a ton of metadata that's associated with every object that lives in those caches. Mm -hmm. I think another example would be there are GraphQL caches that you can just plug into GraphQL. Uh, that is protocol and potentially even content aware. There's a lot of sort of interesting stuff going on over there. And then within almost every large data system you're ever gonna to talk to, whether that's a database or, I mean, really anything, there's a large object store. 
they've got their internal caches. And those internal caches are very purpose-built. Even for services that we've built, um, and I know we're gonna talk about this a little bit later, the caches, the cache that we are storing, it is key to object. And that object is a strongly typed thing. It's not just uh, a blob of data. One area where you'll see that a lot is with things like active record caching that you get out of the box with Ruby on Rails. Where I think you can get into really big trouble is if that object is more than just a plain old data type. So if the thing that you're caching has mutators on it, or if the thing that you're caching has, I mean, even if it has methods on it, weird things can happen because you can be loading a value that is potentially stale. So uh, we use, for instance, we use data store and we use the old data store library in App Engine, and that gives you this db.model type. And you can call db.model. I forget if it's save or put, it doesn't really matter for this purpose. Let's say it's save. You can call db.model.save on any object you have. Well, if you took that object, put it in your cache, pulled it out of your cache and call save on it, you may have potentially just overwritten data and you'll have no idea. Mm -hmm. And everybody else is now wrong. <laughs> so it is yeah. an area where it's easy to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, I bet. Um, so we talked about memcache. I know and CDNs are another common implementation of uh, caching. Are there any other common implementations that we see a lot? Um, I find that I've been using Redis a lot for the last, I don't even know how many years, a lot of years. Um, and Redis is wonderful in that it's not just a key value store, but it's more of like a, it's like a, a, a data type store. I don't know, you can have lists and queues and sets and hash sets and all kinds of other magical things in Redis, which can be a really powerful way to build smarter caching systems than just mm -hmm. key value. We have, as an example, a case where we are storing not just things with an expiration on them. So we write them into the system and we set a, an expiration on them, but we also deal with proactive refreshing based on Redis queues that we use to say, okay, go read that object back out, see if it's stale. If it is stale, well then go back to the system of record and update that thing. So that when you talk to that cache, it is kept up to date and you don't have to do anything. We have other systems where we are invalidating via sending messages over PubSub, indicating to the cache system that, hey, this thing needs to be either deleted or replaced. And so you could argue that that is part of the cache system there, even though ultimately the thing that we're using behind the scenes is key value. The computer itself is made up of many layers. On the disk, whatever kind of disk you have, SSD or spinning disk, there's going to be a layer of caching built into the storage device itself. On top of that, your storage controller may have caching in it. On top of that, you've got main memory, which is very often used as things like a file cache. On top of that, you have anywhere between one and four layers of caching within the CPU itself, all with different latency 
stories and safety guarantees, ultimately getting down to, well, when you want to run something, you're putting something in a register. Everything other than a register is a cache of some sort. So, or it's a system of record. So you can imagine that things get pretty complicated when you want to say, okay, what is really the journey of this byte through my system? Yeah. Abstractions pay. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think a lot of people can keep that in their head and keep moving forward on much of anything. <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's a, a good segue into talking about the details of caching. So I know there's different policies around caching. Can you dive into that a bit too? Sure. So there are three sort of big problems that you have to worry about whenever you're thinking about caching. What are you putting in the cache? And that sort of defines what your read story is going to be. Are you removing things or replacing things in the cache? And are you ejecting things from the cache, either because of time or because of resources? So let's kind of go through those one by one. So the most obvious way to work with the cache is, well, whenever I read anything, I'm just gonna write it back to the cache. So now my read path becomes, check the cache. If it's not there, then go look in the system of record or potentially another layer of cache. If I get a value, write that into the cache. So then the next time when I go to read, I'm reading from the cache and I'm not having to talk to the system of record. That's kind of good enough for a lot of cases. Okay, well, what if it's not good enough? In what case would that not be good enough? Well, one case where that might not be good enough is what if the system of record can't handle the kind of read volume you're gonna put against it? Or you're not going to be able to know ahead of time what I should be reading to put into the cache. Well, in that, in that case, you may want to say, well, it's not just when I read that I'm going to write to the cache. It's when I write, I'm going to write to the cache. That doesn't work in certain scenarios, though. Very often, you're going to find, oh, I'm writing records that nobody ever reads. For instance, if you're talking about like click events, as an example, I want to say, hey, I'm going to write these click events and under some certain scenario, I'm going to read those click events and I'm going to use them to power a recommendation model in real time. What if the only thing that happens is the user shows up, they click once and they leave? You just wasted that write. More important than wasting the time associated with that write is you just wasted a bunch of space in your cache. So these sort of write-through caches have their own problems. So you've always got to, again, be thinking about what is the access pattern? Is a write-through cache appropriate? Is a write-back cache, which is what we described before, where you're going to read the thing and write it back to the cache? Are you going to have a scenario where the interface that the caller uses happens to include a cache transparently that they're unaware of, which would be a read-through cache? Well, that can work too. That's putting your system boundary at a different point. But from the caller's perspective, they're not even aware that the cache is there. If you're talking to a database, you don't know whether or not you're hitting cache. I mean, you can look at statistics and find out. But from the caller's perspective, I happen to read this 
page out of a table from cash or not is kind of none of your business. And they've got their own cash problems internally. But that's a case where you as a reader can be blissfully unaware of all of that stuff. So now that we've got our data in the cache, reading it out is, well, that depends on, is it a sort of a read-through scenario that I just defined, or is that going to be uh, something where I'm addressing the cache explicitly, like that write-back scenario? Um, by the way, CDNs are another example of a read-through cache. Once it's there, we've got to have some determination of when it shouldn't be there anymore. There are two big reasons why it shouldn't be there anymore. The first big reason would be it's stale. Mm -hmm. So if we're going back to that case where assuming we have mutable data, because if it's immutable data, it's never stale, sort of by definition, yeah. which is really powerful. Um, it really simplifies your life if you can make that assumption. But if we assume that it, that it can go stale, as an example, let's go back to our images on our social network case. We talked about having immutable addressing and how, or direct addressing and, uh, of immutable objects and how wonderful that is. But what if we get a call from a rights holder who says, no, you have to take that image down. Well, uh-oh, now we got a problem. We now have to proactively go to our cache and say that we're going to knock this thing out of the cache. So that is a valid solution saying that you're going to have proactive deletion. Now, this is kind of an extreme example, but I think something a lot more common would be if we go back to the case we were talking before about our customer example. What if customer records very rarely change, but when they do change, we need to be responsive to it? This is what we do, by the way, at BlueCore with products. Products don't change all that often, but when they do, we have to be responsive to it. Well, in those cases, we are signaling a proactive replacement or deletion of that object. So that's another way we can get that thing out of there. Again, proactively removing the thing. Another way to do it is heuristically. So we can say that we put something into the cache. It's going to be good enough for, I don't know, let's say 10 minutes as an example. What is the value of that kind of a cache replacement policy? Sorry, a, a cache eviction policy. The value of that is going to be determined by how many reads you didn't do. So if we're going to say that every 10 minutes, I would have done a 1,000 reads, well, now I didn't do them. I was able to do them against the cache. That's worth doing. That's great. Yeah. But what if the thing you're going to be reading is read so infrequently that the freshness period you define for that eviction. So you're saying, I'm going to put this thing in the cache and it's going to stay there for 10 minutes, but this thing is probably not going to be read within those 10 minutes. Maybe it's only going to be read once an hour just because of, again, access patterns. Well, then your cache is useless. In BlueCore, as an example, the, we have a, a Redis cache for products. We have proactive deletion on that Redis cache. That proactive deletion allows us to have a very, very long TTL. It's measured in weeks. TTL is time to live. So we write the thing into the cache and we say, whenever we write it, this thing will be here for no more than two weeks. 
But if it changes, that's okay. We're gonna come in, proactively delete or overwrite that thing long before our two weeks has expired. So we don't have to worry about it sitting there stale for days and weeks, breaking policy, right? That policy of required freshness on that object. However, inside our service, we have products cached in memory. But that cache in memory is a lot harder to invalidate because instead of living in one place, like it does in those uh, Redis caches, it lives on each instance of our service. So each instance of our service now needs to get the message that, hey, this thing needs to be evicted from your cache. That's mm. kind of a pain in the neck. And it yeah. also has performance implications because the overwhelming majority of products that are being updated weren't in the cache anyway. So a message comes in saying, hey, I think you should delete this product from your cache. And the service says, what product? I don't even have that. But it still had to go through the trouble of answering that question. What we yeah. do in that case is for the cache tier that is outside the servers, that Redis cache, that has proactive replacement. But the cache that lives inside the service has a time to live of only one minute. And it's okay for us to be out of date, to be stale for a minute. That's just part of what our business is. Mm -hmm. And because that's okay, we can take the easy way out. And like I said it before, if you can ever take the easy way out with caching, do it because this stuff gets really hard. So we have multiple tiers of our cache. The time to get a product from the in-memory cache is measured in nanoseconds, mm -hmm. microseconds if, the, product, if the, the service is very heavily loaded. The time to get the product from the Redis cache is a couple of milliseconds. It's an off-box call. There's some serialization and deserialization that has to happen, but that's okay. Milliseconds are pretty good. To get it from the system of record, in our case, is roughly 45 milliseconds. Okay, so now we're talking. We can really speak about what is the value of doing this. Mm -hmm. The value of doing this is how much time are we saving and how much trouble are we going through in order to save that time? How many of those expensive reads are we going to avoid? And therefore, how are we going to evict or replace? The other problem that you run into, so all of this was about, about replacement and eviction for freshness, right? How do we make sure that we're within bounds of a product policy? But the other problem that we have is, and I'll take Blue Core's products as an example, we have more than enough of them to fill the memory of pretty much anything but the largest machines. Mm -hmm. I don't want my service to have to run on only the largest machines. That's very expensive and kind of silly. Yeah. It's silly because most of the products aren't being accessed now anyway, so we don't need them. So another reason to evict items from your cache would be for capacity. So yeah, this product is still within our freshness criteria, right? It's still within a minute, for instance, of our in-memory cache. But I'm storing too much stuff and I don't wanna run out of RAM. So instead, I'm going to throw them away. 
question then becomes, how do you decide what you're going to throw away? You can imagine there being a really easy idea of, hey, we're just gonna pick something at random. I don't care what it is. Whoever's first alphabetically or whatever the case may be, you know what, you're thrown out. That works. And believe it or not, even that really kind of dumb cash eviction policy, yeah, it's way more effective than you might think. Interesting. Because again, this is only happening when you're at capacity. Yeah. So if you're not often going to be at capacity, random is good enough. At the other end of the spectrum, there's the theoretical, what if I could by magic know this is the item in my cache that I am going to use last. Of all the items that I have, this one is the furthest off into the future, but until I'm going to need it, and I could evict that. Well, that's going to do much better than our random case. Unfortunately, though, it's also impossible. It's good to talk about theoretically, because then you can think about Given the capacity of my cache and the volume of sort of the hot set of data that I'm going to be reading, if I could somehow maintain this perfect information about what to evict, well, that tells you kind of what your horizon is. It's somewhere between random and perfect knowledge. You can always do better than random. You can never do as well as perfect knowledge. So at least you've bounded the problem. There are a bunch of other I'll say more practical mechanisms than perfect knowledge. There's least recently used. Well, if I haven't used this thing in a while, maybe I'm not gonna use it for a while longer. That's a pretty good bet, throw that one out. Least recently used is pretty effective. The only problem with least recently used is that it's really hard and expensive to implement a perfect least recently used algorithm. You need to somehow maintain a list that ordering of when things were used. And every time something is used, you need to shuffle your ordering. So what you're going to find in real world systems, and uh, Memcache had a really good uh, article about this several years ago, but pretty much all of the caches have something in this regard, is you're going to approximate least recently used. Maybe that means you're going to put things into generations like a garbage collector. Maybe that means you're going to do things in slabs. So this slab is all going to fall out of cash at one time. And I don't have to think about all of the individual members of that slab because I can think of the slab as a group. But that allows you to get away from the problem of the fact that it's expensive to maintain a truly least recently used list. Another algorithm that is, I think, very interesting. Um, I think it's a little bit harder to, to reason about is least frequently used. So I don't want to get rid of the thing that I haven't used now. I want to get rid of the thing that I only used once. Again, your access pattern is going to determine what that looks like. But that's where you're saying things like, well, I always look at the partner settings object, and even though I haven't looked at it in 10 minutes, this user record that came in that's also taking up space in my cache, 
it's better for me to evict that because I'm going to be talking to this shared object more often than I'm going to talk about this particular session-centric object. Least frequently used is available on a lot of different cache systems, and it is pretty effective. Um, there are a bunch of articles that have been written about using that for database caches, and you know it, it works really well. There are a whole bunch of hybrid models, and honestly, this is you know you could write a PhD dissertation about just this problem of uh, uh, cache placement and cache replacement which is what this sort of collection of algorithms is called, least recent, recently used, least frequently used, random, all the, those are all cache replacement policies. The rules around that are complicated enough and the implications are complicated enough that this is a huge area of research. I will say that in the, systems, in the systems that I built, you don't need to do anything all that complicated most of the time. I can rely on external systems to handle the big cases. But for the internal stuff, well, the simple thing is usually good enough. And the simple thing in this case being something like least recently used, where even if I did want to do all the bookkeeping, I have enough performance to spare where I can do that without compromising other design aspects of my system. If I were building a database system, I would be singing a very different tune about that because caching is such a big part of the system. I mean, data access is such a big part of the system that the decisions you make are a lot more impactful than they are in, I'll say, the kind of line of business services that I'm building. Yeah. Um... Also, thanks for keeping a straight face while my cat is like, <laughs> like all like, I wish you could see him right now. He's like, pet me or I will kill you. <laughs> I just, I just see like a little bit of eyebrow peeking into the frame. He is a <laughs> thanks. Oliver. Um, <laughs> no, the, yeah. So I guess now is a great time since you've been hinting at it. We do want to talk about the lazy LRU cast that you implemented sure. and wrote. A post about. Um, so I can see like from what you have been saying, it makes perfect sense to me. We're sending a bunch of emails all at once. You're trying to within, like you said, definitely within a minute, trying to access a bunch of the same products to go in those emails since we use a lot of the same products for those emails at one time. And then maybe for that partner, like you said, we use it, we use those same things for different types of emails then. So it could be also in the, the second layer of caching. Um, so that makes perfect sense to me. It's like, duh, of course you would want this other layer of cache, but I'm sure at some point it wasn't so obvious. Can you walk me through like how you realize that lazy LRU is something that you should implement? So when the recommendation service was first released, the only product cache that we had was that Redis-based cache I was referring to earlier. We knew that we were going to have to do something fairly complicated in terms of keeping all of the product data up to date, that proactive invalidation that we were talking about earlier. And that before the first line of code was written, we knew that that was going to be a thing. One of the complications of products that we didn't really anticipate is 
that certain partners' products are really, really big, potentially 1,500 attributes for a single product. Well, at some point, the number of bytes you're transferring over the wire and the cost of that deserialization got to be a problem. Something that I especially didn't anticipate was that the protobuf implementation that was available in the open source Google protobuf library for Go didn't give us the opportunity to reuse some of the memory buffers that we were creating. So we would really drove the decision to add an in-memory cache wasn't actually latency or locality. It was avoiding memory churn. So instead of churning through a piece of memory every time a call happens, we might be able to pull that thing out of cache and reuse that memory. That turned out to be really effective very quickly. Um, we knew almost immediately what the problem was, thanks to the great PProf tools that come with Go. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised with how effective it was to just throw a quick cache in there. And we did it initially in a test environment, just like with a map. It was really the simplest thing that would work, knowing that this couldn't be a long-term solution. We would end up having every single product for every single partner in memory, and that's not good. So we knew this was going to be effective, but we knew that that solution wasn't good enough. We needed to think in some way about cache eviction and cache replacement. Right? What happens if I have too many products in my cache? How do I keep these things fresh? All right. The other thing we knew is that we're talking about a really high rate of requests that are usually going to be talking about the same products in a relatively short period of time. So tens of thousands of requests a second, but it's all for the same email campaign for a partner. Any given partner, we have a partner that has over a hundred million products in their catalog. But if you think about the products that are active, that are being recommended, that are going to appear in an email, it's gonna be a couple of thousand maybe for partners that are doing things like uh, retail clothing, as an example, those lists can be in the dozens. All of the products that they're going to recommend for an entire day, there may only be a couple of dozen across their entire customer base. So we need them for a short period of time, right? The duration of a campaign, which is going to be many minutes. Some number, probably less than 60, probably greater than five for larger campaigns. Short campaigns may finish in a minute, but larger campaigns, it's somewhere between five and 60. And by campaigns, so, you just mean like a, an email send that they set up like, I don't know, like abandoned cart or the sale or whatever they decide so to do. That is a partner targeting an audience with an email in one shot. So yeah. today at 2 p.m., I want to send all of my men who bought red shorts last summer, hey, you thought <laughs> about buying some red shorts this summer? Exactly. That, that would be a campaign. And if we run it again tomorrow, that would be another one. So at 2 o'clock, we wake up and we say, okay, go send Steve the email about the red shorts and go send John the email about the red shorts and go send Mike the email about the red shorts. 
It's always about the red shorts. 30,000 times a second, we're pulling in those red shorts. Well, they're not changing that quickly. And as I said before, a minute is good enough for us in terms of freshness. So we said that we're gonna be doing 30,000 requests a second, and we're gonna hold these things for a minute. That's 1.8 million requests that we don't have to do. I love saving 1.8 million requests. That sounds great to me. So that's wonderful, but we still have to get these things out of the cache at some point. We knew that, that we would, could mark them as being stale. So one way that we could have done this is said, okay, I'm gonna take this thing, I'm gonna write it to the cache, but I'm going to include some metadata with it that says, by the way, this piece of data is no longer valid after now plus a minute. That gets us to a point where we can meet our freshness requirement. So we've met our product requirement, but we mm -hmm. haven't met our requirement to clear out memory. So that's not good enough. So eviction on read is not good enough for what we need to do. We're still gonna run out of memory. So instead we needed to have some kind of proactive deletion there. We knew that that was gonna be a requirement for our ZLRU. We knew that there was going to be a time-based way that we could deal with that. We don't have to do the time thing, but it does mean that maybe we don't have to make other decisions later. Because the other thing we have to ask is what happens if I have an entire cache that's full, but I need to put one new thing in it. What do I throw away? And this is where that question of LRU comes in, into play. We can say, well, okay, I know, because I've done all the bookkeeping and paid all the cost, I know that this is the order of access for objects in my cache. Every time I access something, I'm going to put it to the head of the queue, and I can look at the tail of the queue and say, that's the guy who should die next. Okay, so I want to put something into the cache. The cache is full. I say, hold on a second. I read that guy off the tail of the queue, say, oh, time for you to die, throw him out of the cache. Now I have an open spot that I can stick this new item into. Great. So that's the LRU part of the cache. So you're saying if that even with a TTL of a minute, you're still running out of memory? I still may run out of memory. Okay. If you can imagine a cache of infinite size, right? I, I'm going to allocate infinite RAM into my cache. Then a TTL of a minute is fine, right? Doesn't matter. I don't even need to have proactive eviction. You can access the entire live set in that minute and it's fine. The problem is that there's no correct number to pick there. If you pick too high, you're throwing money away. Because again, how big of an instance do we have to reserve? We happen to be running under Kubernetes, so it's literally a reservation. When I tell the scheduler, hey, I need infinite RAM. Okay, I can't say that, but I could say, hey, scheduler, I need 64 gigs of RAM in order to run this thing, or, or a terabyte of RAM, if we're talking about the biggest machines. I think we can get up to four terabytes in a single box now with commodity hardware. But regardless, four terabytes of RAM, give it to me. Well, each instance of my service, which probably doesn't need that four terabytes of RAM almost ever, each instance of my service is now really expensive to run. So I don't want to pick too high. On the other hand, if I don't have a proper eviction policy and I pick too low, 
my pod's going to get evicted or my application's going to crash. I'm going to have a bad time. I'm not going to be able to maintain servers. So we need something in there for what happens if I, if I guess wrong. Right? I always want to guess enough. I always want to have enough capacity for all the things that I'm going to need. But if I'm wrong, if I misjudge the access pattern, that shouldn't result in my service crashing. We can probably do better than that. So, okay, mm -hmm. TTL of a minute, it's probably going to tell us how much RAM we need. But if I'm wrong, I want to have an eviction policy so that I can set an upper bound on how big this thing can possibly get. Yeah. Now, I took the cheap way out and said, in terms of the number of objects that are stored, a more correct way to do it would be in terms of the number of bytes that are stored. But this was easy enough and effective. And again, if you can take the easy way out, take the easy way out. That's what and I'm what's doing. the number? I'm just curious. I believe the number for us is 100,000. Okay. So that would mean you could have campaigns for partners accessing 100,000 uh, products within a minute, and we would not run out of cash room. As a practical matter, 100,000 is way bigger than we actually need. We actually yeah. only really need a couple of thousand. But 100,000, let me put, a, put an upper bound on the amount of memory that we're using. On average, our products are in the neighborhood of two kilobytes. So that 100,000 allowed me to put a, put a boundary on there. I mean, who knows? Maybe every partner is like, let's all get together and send a campaign at the same time so we can take their VEX service down. <laughs> but they won't because you have this policy. So that's good. <laughs> I, I am very fond of telling people when they ask, hey, can the service handle this? Bring it. Well, if all want, if the whole world comes at once, my answer will still be bring it. The, <laughs> I love that. The Redis boxes on the other end are going to be potentially upset. But even if all of our partners were sending campaigns simultaneously, a hundred thousand is probably going to be good enough. Probably. Nice. Okay. So we have a hundred thousand of these things. Why didn't I take something off the shelf? Like, why did I write my own thing? And I, I want to say that there are some good options out there. In my case, there were a couple of things that, that were requirements for me. I needed to have some way to handle concurrent access. One of the problems you have whenever you're dealing with having to do any kind of bookkeeping, right? I have two different data structures. In my case, I have a map that I'm using in order to do lookups. And then I have a priority queue, uh, which is implemented as a heap. I have a priority queue that I'm using to maintain the LRU side of this. Well, access to those things has, it, it had better be synchronized or you're gonna have a bad time. Oh, I wrote this thing to the map, but I didn't write it to the priority queue. Well, then that thing is never gonna be evicted and you just leaked. So concurrency control was important for me. I wanted to have something that supported proactive TTL, a proactive expiry, but I don't need it. It's not a hard requirement, but it is a real nice to have. And the reason that I saw that as a, as a, a valuable nice to have is that Go processes, for the most part, do not return memory to the operating system. So if my cache 
at that magical moment when the whole world came at me, I used 100,000 products and I asked for a couple hundred megs of RAM or a couple, maybe I asked for three gigs of RAM in order to hold all of that stuff from the operating system. Well, the service is never gonna give that back. So it's not just that I, I would need to then reserve it, it's that that node, that, that node that I wanna share now is effectively at that reduced capacity forever. So not just filling to the brim and evicting that when it gets full did have a particular advantage for me. And that, by the way, is something that I didn't find in most of the implementations that I saw out there. The other thing about the lazy LRU is that the whole thing started as a joke. I was talking with another engineer, uh, Evan Jones, uh, uh, who we desperately miss. I was talking with Evan about, you know, this is one of those things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't implement your own cache if there's one you can take off the shelf. Again, if you can take the easy way out, take the easy way out. I looked at the implementations that were out there and at the time, and I have found one since that does implement proactive caching. But the ones that I found out there at the time, and this is February of 2020-ish, either they didn't have concurrency control, they didn't have proactive eviction or both. The closest thing that I found was the uh, HashiCorp LRU, which by the way, is very well implemented. They did a really good job. Um, and it's not that I didn't use it because it's not good code. It's that I didn't use it because I was kind of joking about this, you know, knowing our access pattern, that someone is going to fire off a campaign. It's gonna be accessed really hard for a relatively short period of time and then probably not again for hours or even days. Well, that means that my total active set is probably pretty small. And that proactive eviction has real value. Knowing that access pattern, maybe I can do this lazy thing where I can skip most of the bookkeeping because the things that were recently accessed they're going to be accessed again. So maybe the top 25% of the cash, I'm not even going to bother with the bookkeeping. If you're in the top 25% and you get accessed, I don't move you to the head of that queue. I just kind of leave you there because you're really not in any danger of eviction anyway. There's no action that's going to be taken. If you're in the top 25%, even if the cash is completely full, and I'm gonna to have to evict before I do my next ad. If you're in the top 25%, it's not gonna be you. So, okay, we'll just leave things there. And that saves a heck of a lot of activity. In cases where the cash is less than 25% full, which is most of the time, in fact, almost all of the time, I can skip that bookkeeping phase. The only thing I need to worry about is the proactive eviction. The proactive eviction isn't based on when you were most recently accessed, like that LRU priority queue is. It's based on when it was inserted. That's a completely different problem and a heck of a lot easier to deal with. And frankly, I don't even need to worry about it that much because scanning it is cheap. So what the lazy LRU does is I mentioned before, we have a map to do the lookups. So lookups in that cache 
are constant time. I'm storing objects, not blobs. Because Go doesn't have generics, they are of type interface. So you have to do uh, a casting when you pull something out of the cache. But that's OK. That's life. Internally, we have that map, but we also have that priority queue. When things are added to the cache, we insert them into both the map and the priority queue. When they are accessed, we look at their position in the priority queue, and it's a list. So it's cheap to answer the question what your position is. If your position is further back than the top 25%, then we're going to do that bookkeeping. We're going to move you to the head of the line. If your position is not in the top 25%, we just leave you there. So the amount of time that you're that you're holding that lock is very low. Not only that, in cases where we're not doing the bookkeeping, you can get away with using a reader-writer lock. So you can have concurrent readers. And if we're not doing that bookkeeping, you're never taking an exclusive lock. That's a big difference from what the HashiCorp implementation does. But there's a trade-off there. If you are often full and reading from the full data set, the HashiCorp implementation is significantly faster than the lazy LRU. The reason being that reader-writer lock is comparatively expensive in cases where you have to take the exclusive lock. But in cases where you don't have to take the exclusive lock, mine is cheaper. And it's potentially twice as fast under the right circumstances. So you decide whether or not you need, so you first say, where is it in the list? And then you decide what kind of lock you need. So you take a read lock yeah, and you say, okay, do I, you take the read lock, you look it up, you find its position in the priority queue and you answer the question, do I need to do any additional bookkeeping? And if the answer to that question is no, you release your read lock and you move along your merry way. Okay. In cases now I see. where you, so when you do the read, if you do need to do the bookkeeping, you release your read lock and then you take a write lock. It's very important that you don't try to escalate your lock. You will absolutely deadlock with the implementation that we have. So it releases the lock, it takes an exclusive lock and then checks to see, do I still need to do the bookkeeping? Because maybe okay. there was another thread that was doing the same work. If I still need to do the bookkeeping, it then does the bookkeeping, shuffles the priority queue, which isn't a super expensive operation, by the way. It's just that exclusive lock that I'm trying to avoid. And you're just so betting that most of the time you don't need to do that. So, And in fact, I almost never have to. It's only when the system is more than 25% full. In our case, when we have more than 25,000 products in the cache in memory, yeah. which is very rare. And because we have proactive eviction, it remains rare. If, the, if you didn't have that proactive eviction, right, looking to see who should be thrown out because they're stale, then eventually you would tend toward being full, even though the overwhelming majority of your set is going to be stale. Mm -hmm. The way that we do the proactive eviction is kind of sleazy, but really effective. Every now and then, and how long now and then in, then is, is determined by uh, 10 times the rate of your TTL. So if your TTL is a minute, it's gonna run every six seconds. 
There's also a maximum on there. I forget what I set it to. And there's also a minimum. Um, that way, if you set your TTL to be really, really short, it doesn't like spin once a millisecond trying to run. Um, but it'll just read it'll take a read lock, read through a portion of the set, look to see which of those things that are in the set are marked as should be evicted because they're stale. If it found any, it then takes an exclusive lock, removes all of those things, and releases the exclusive lock. So even that proactive deletion, that reaper, if it doesn't have anything to do, it doesn't ever need to take an exclusive lock. It only takes an exclusive lock if it finds something that's stale. Which, nice. if you're if you're talking about you know reading through the cache frequently and all that, hey, that may never be anything if you're if the same data set stays hot all the time. As a practical matter, it's probably always going to be something. But uh, it's proven to be really effective. And was this lazy part that was that your idea? Have you ever seen it anywhere, or did you just come up with it from the use case that we need? I came up with I came up with that. I'm sure there's prior art on this. I mean, this is a problem people have been looking at for decades, and I'm not yeah. that smart. But when I was thinking about this problem and thinking, boy, I wish I had the kind of highly tuned really kind of interesting nifty implementations like you have with memcached or redis you know all these sort mm -hmm. of like nifty slab things and you know, i went looking for some of the more esoteric kind of uh eviction policies and by the way the hashicorp implementation does implement some of them uh they implement the 2q implementation they implement arc which is from ibm and uh, they list in their README that it's still under some kind of copyright protection. I, I don't know that much about it. Uh, but I was like, you know, I wonder if this would work. I wonder if it would be effective. And I tried it out. It was really effective. It had the advantage of keeping our memory down. And it was really easy to test its correctness. The funny thing about this whole story is you mentioned that there was a blog post on the Blue Core Engineering Medium blog recently. Uh, it took me over a year from when I implemented this thing, put it into production, proved that it was correct, by the way, before I put it in production. Uh, it, took a, it took a year between when I did that and when that blog post came out. And it's not because that blog post is so long. I would recommend everyone definitely go read it. It's really because benchmarking this and showing that access pattern and showing what this thing does in a fair light, right? Like, why would you use this over, let's say, the HashiCorp implementation? And again, I keep taking that as the example because it's, it's darn good code. Why would you choose this over that? Well, this is the access pattern that shows the, the lazy ORU outperforming uh, what you can do with the, and, and again, the HashiCorp implementations is, I think, are my the example that I used. Um, how to benchmark these things honestly and fairly is really challenging. At least I found it challenging. Yeah. And the last thing that I wanted to do was put this thing out in the world and say, hey, everybody, I'm awesome and everyone else sucks. Um, aside from the fact that it would be an amazing level of hubris. 
it's also just wrong. <laughs> That's funny. But if it fits your use case, hey, it's it's great to have that arrow in your quiver. And like I said, it worked really well for what we were doing. I told you that uh, it started on Friday on a Friday as a joke with Evan. And then uh, I was sitting around on Saturday and because I'm such a cool guy with an awesome social life, I was writing <laughs> some code. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll give this thing a try. Uh, and it just kind of worked out. I was like, okay, well, I didn't think I was going to want to use this, but there's a really good reason for me to use it, specifically that uh, uh, total working memory set, uh, sorry, total working set uh, memory allocation that we mentioned earlier. So, okay, we'll kind of roll with it. And I showed up on Monday and Evan knew immediately that I had actually written it. And he started making fun of me <laughs> immediately. And he was right. <laughs> That's hilarious. So yeah, like you mentioned, uh, and that's why I was kind of asking you, was it something that you just came up with? Because it seems like such a good fit for the use case that you're using it for. Have you by chance thought of any other use cases that would benefit from this cache implementation as well? I think there are a lot of cases where you, are, you have a relatively large total data set some portion of that data set is going to be hot for a relatively short period of time and then it's not going to be hot anymore and that's where this implementation i think does really well in cases where you're really trying to use every byte of memory available to you you want to hold as much of the entire working set in memory as you can this implementation is not a great fit but I'll give as an example, let's say that you're talking about caching user objects. Well, not every user is going to be on your system all the time. So you don't need to cache the permissions for every user all the time or every user's metadata all the time. But if a user is on your system and doing stuff, well, they're, if they just did something three seconds ago, they're probably about to do something else until they're not. And then they go away and you don't hear from them for a while and then they're going to come back later hopefully but that's a case where it fits the same model just sort of in slow motion instead of having thousands of requests a second no 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 we're going to have some portion of the data set that we want to keep in memory and they're going to be there doing things and then they're going to go away and the rate of that is going to be in the case of something like user records for people coming to your application it could be it could be tens of seconds between calls or single digit seconds between calls depending on what you're doing it really depends um but this model i think fits a lot of use cases pretty well i don't think that it fits the sort of general case of i want to allocate this much memory to hold as much as i can and when i run out i run out uh, if that's what you're doing, go use the HashiCorp implementation. It's great. Uh, and there are a bunch of others out there that I think are also quite good. Yeah, when you said uh, it's going to be hot, then it's not. I thought you should really have a log line or something whenever you move something to the top of the cache. This is that's hot by Paris Hilton. <laughs> and then when you evict it, that's not hot. <laughs> so <laughs> well, not hot. 
in that case, we definitely want to make sure that we are reducing the number of times we're doing that bookkeeping and shuffling stuff. <laughs> I'm joking. Of otherwise, course, but... we're going to have a very full log. Um, also, a picture of her should come up saying it. So I don't know if you can really do that, but like, I'm sure that's going to make your logging uh, go up a lot too. <laughs> hey, I'm a big I'm a big fan of of throwing random ASCII art into logs. To, to make... <laughs> make future engineers smile uh, uh i'm totally joking obviously but it would be funny <laughs> i am super not <laughs> all the json structured logging means that i don't get to do ascii art much anymore it's kind of a bummer <laughs> darn um so i guess i'll ask you one more question about this <laughs> anyways um sure. what was the most challenging part of this whole thing so the the initial caching not the lazy ru piece the initial product cache the 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 with the proactive expiration all of that that i, I don't even want to say that it, it was difficult to implement like there's there's certain kind of gotchas around that it wasn't all that hard but it took a level of understanding. And I will say, I'm not the person who came up with that. Uh, another engineer who's unfortunately left Blue Core, a fellow named Chen, came up with that. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant because it, it required understanding not only what our access patterns are going to be, but what our update patterns are going to be. And I, I thought it was just brilliant. Um, so I'd say it was hard to know that that was something that you need to do. Mm -hmm. On the lazy LRU side, some of the bookkeeping was a little bit challenging. I'll say anybody who's looked at the uh, heap implementation in the Go standard library, because there are no generics in Go and it wants to avoid casting as much as possible, it's pretty clever. It's not the easiest piece of code to work with in the history of the world. And I feel like it is easy to make a mistake when mm -hmm. using that uh, that heap implementation, but it is really fast and it does what it says on the tin, and that's that's kind of great. The implementation itself, other than that, wasn't that hard. Even the concurrency pieces of it and dealing with the locks, because I kind of knew why am I locking and, and what this is all about, wasn't all that hard. The scheduling wasn't all that hard, even for the that Reaper thread that runs on a timer in the background. But the other hard piece of it was figuring out how, and actually the implementation for the benchmarking was, you can find it on GitHub. Uh, if you go to github.com slash triggered mail slash lazy LRU, there's a benchmark subproject underneath there. The implementation for that is pretty weird. I wasn't able to use the built-in good benchmarking stuff uh as much as i would have liked to because showing those access patterns uh programmatically and implementing it in a way that was as close to realistic and fair as i could really wasn't that conducive to using the built-in benchmarking tooling so that stuff was really hard i mean there's a reason why it took me literally a year between when this thing was in production and when I was ready to open source it and write that blog post about it. And it really comes down to benchmarking this stuff is hard. 
it's hard to think about what defines the I can think sort of in the abstract, okay, my access pattern kind of looks like this, so I want something that responds sort of like that. But then figuring out how to codify that access pattern into a load generator that is doing what you want it to do and is fair, I found to be very difficult, really fun, but definitely difficult. Yeah. And I had a terrible taskmaster uh, on uh, when writing that blog post. It's this girl I work with named Alexa. She's great, <laughs> but boy, she just whipped me up one side and down the other when I was late. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I didn't. That was very nice. I gave you, you more were, time. You were very nice. <laughs> but I have found that the best way to... Um, yeah, influence without actually having the power to do so. I mean, a shame, public shame. So <laughs> shame works <laughs> sometimes, but I didn't shame you. But I'm just saying that <laughs> at different levels, it works sometimes for getting people to write their blogs. <laughs> I would say you, instead of shaming me, you, you preyed on my Jewish guilt. It worked very well. <laughs> well, I'm glad something worked at least but no it's a great blog obviously i'm going to link it and um you know if people don't already know already know obviously it's open source um so you're free to use it yeah congrats it's like a big accomplishment so yeah that's that's a big deal it was a lot of fun and i hope other people out in the world find it useful something that i find interesting about go as an ecosystem is there certain projects like uh, uh, the Badger project where there's a lot of work being done, very focused work, but a lot of work being done in these areas. But in terms of general tooling, there's not as much as I would have expected. And so mm -hmm. I'm glad to be able to contribute to this area where I found a gap in the ecosystem. Nice. Uh, are there any last parting comments or words you want to leave us with? That Wu-Tang quote may be hackneyed, but I still want the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wu-Tang and caching are for the children. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you for joining me again. Um, I'm sure I'll have you on again. So, you know, it's not the last time. <laughs> okay. well, thank you for having me you made it so thank you for sticking out to the end of this podcast i know it's a little long but i think the content was definitely definitely worth it i just want to also say i've had a couple comments that are that about the podcast and i think that those to me i appreciate them so much even just small comments about someone who listened or enjoyed listening it makes everything i do worth it for sure so i encourage you to give me feedback good or bad just i'm open to all of it i'm open to improving the podcast as well and making your listening experience better so just always know that again thank you for listening and next time uh, I'm going to be talking with Matthew Gersman about the history of the web and front-end development as it's grown. I don't know a lot about this, so I had a great time talking with him and learning more about it. 
and make sure to subscribe so that you know when that podcast comes out. I'm hoping in a month because it's Fast Girl Summer and I'm trying to live my best life, even though that gets a little bit exhausting sometimes. But anyways, (laughs) you know what I mean. And yeah, until next time.